April 27, 2021. It's the Watford Pedro Show. show happy tuesday hello happy tuesday to you in california well, you're supposed to wait till i introduce you but fuck <laughs> okay <laughs> you can tell people i ain't man alone brother matt he is in the love grotto on the pleasure point because still quick quarantino mode but 
not totally man alone because of those Estonian software engineers with their Skype invention. Brother Otto Booge, you're, you're talking to me from Toronto, correct? No, I'm actually calling. I'm talking to you from Canada, but a, a, a little piece of nowhere called Windsor, Ontario, which is um, right across the river. I know from all about Windsor. Oh, okay. no, I, w- I was thinking of Winnipeg. No, no, Winnipeg. Yeah, no, no, yeah, no. yeah. Windsor is across the bridge. And in fact, it's featured in your film, The Coronation yeah. Room. Yes, 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 yes. Right. Okay, okay. I'm a slow learner, Otto. No, but I think one thing is, let me just help you out here with Windsor. The interesting thing about Windsor, I'm in Canada technically, you know, uh, but Detroit is such a huge part of the psyche of Windsor that it's almost like an annex, a gun-free suburb of Detroit with healthcare. You know, in that respect, it's it's very different from what you'd experience in, like you said, Winnipeg earlier, or even Toronto. It's kind of a bit of a uh, you know an odd place in that way, culturally as well as other well, ways. I've never played it, there, but. I have played down the road on the way to Toronto. It's called London. Yes. And there was a club there for a long time at the office. Oh, call the office. Call, call the, the office. office. Call the office. Good people. And I think it's still it's still there. I mean, during these shutdowns and all that, who knows what's going on. But, you know, the odd time I'm in London, I do see a marquee. And then it looks like the bands that are playing there are still sort of, you know, active, fluid bands. So, uh, that in, is in London, which is two hours north of here, between here and Toronto, yes. Yeah, so I ain't played Windsor, but I've played several London gigs. Okay, it's smaller than Toronto, smaller than Winnipeg even, but <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's still an okay to place to play, you know? I, 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 I've always loved uh, Canadian gigs. But yeah. anyway, enough about what. Let's talk about Otto. And, yes. And, and what? Let's get into the movies, but before we get to the movies, a little yeah. background on your movie making. How did you get into this kind of shit? Well, the thing is, you know, I, I don't really consider myself a filmmaker from a standpoint of you certainly don't make a living making films, and I mean, the way I'm making them. So I've been sort of, I've, this is my third feature. I've made some music friends for a, a, a pal in Detroit. You know, I'm pretty articulate as far as the language of cinema, having watched a lot of it, having run a rep theater when I was younger. Um, and then, you know, I did a couple features, one in the early 2000s, one in 2011. Um, you lose money, but you learn a lot. But did you, know you go I, to, uh, did you go to film school? I mean, when did it, start, was it, did it start with like Super 8 when you were in grade school? Well, yeah, no, I think when it started, I didn't go to film school. I'm an art school dropout. Um, filmmaking is sort of an extension of uh, film viewing. I, I think one of the things with filmmaking is that if you learn how to watch a film, if you learn... You know, for me, sometimes what's important in a movie is not the story, but how the story is told. And as a viewer, I learned, you kind of learn the language and you learn the sort of, uh, you know, from the standpoint of conceptually, the structure of telling a story visually. And then eventually you pick up a camera and you shoot some film. It did start with Super 8 way back when. Yeah, I want to get particular. I understand the general kind of schema of it. But in your (laughs) particular situation... Like, did yes. you get a camera for Christmas or some shit like that? Yeah. No, it wasn't like that at all. I think what it is is that I kind of um, just sort of, like, started spending every nickel I earned at some point in time, probably in my late 20s, after I kind of uh, retired from punk rock for a bit, got into filmmaking, and I just bought my camera, you buy film, you know, you waste a lot of money uh, learning to do things, and eventually you start putting things together, and... 
I think what it is is that for me is that movie making is a sort of it's just it, it, it's it's almost like something for me. It's 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 a it's art it's a form of articulation, a form of language that sometimes you know words literally can't express. The same way you know music is sort of a another sort of uh, you know dimensional sort of approach to uh, well, expression. Yeah, yeah, it's expression, right? Yeah. So you're yeah. telling me when you were a boy, you were yes. you were a music man. Well, a boy, let's call it a, a teenage boy. When I was a teenage boy, yeah, yeah, more younger than you are now. Yeah, and then I'm 52 now. But so when I was like 16, I kind of uh, got involved with you know sort of, for lack of a better word, punk rock. I mean, kind of you know music that was you know peripheral, and that happened to come about because I had older brothers who were six and eight years older than me, respectively, who were very active in the late 70s and early 80s Detroit uh, punk and hardcore scenes. And so I watched them. I witnessed them as a as a 12 year old kid, 11 year old kid. And I was kind of scared and fascinated by it. But eventually, when they moved on to other things, as people think they do, I kind of picked it up. So by 1984, 85, punk rock was my thing, and 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 that factors. Can, can, can I ask film. you? Can I ask you what you played? Well, I played. I did some uh, recording. I played bass, like you. Ah, your bass man. What what was your first bass? Oh, it was a, it was a Japanese Fender, um, but a short neck one, a short neck one, like a Mustang. Uh, yeah, like a three quarter neck. I don't. I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, I think they were the called. Mustangs were the littler ones. Yeah, and I mean it was it was a nice nice piece can, can nice you thing. Remember, I mean, can you remember? I didn't, I didn't really pursue performing music um, much. No, I just more did, or less was doing fanzines, going to see bands. Did you ever you know, do a gig? Uh, I think I did one, two shows. Uh, but nothing really noteworthy. One was one of them was at the Greystone back in like '85. I know I about the Greystone. I Minutemen played there on yes. Halloween or Devil's Night the night before. Uh, last <laughs> time he played that town, I dressed as a Freemason. I found a Freemason's outfit in Pennsylvania. Look, wow. <laughs> uh, watching your film, it seems like yeah. the thing that set this baby off was you finding some film footage, probably from your older brothers. Yes. Yes, I'll give you a bit of the backstory on that. What happened was, uh, this is 1982, March 1982. One of my brothers, Dennis, uh, snuck out one of my parent, my, my, snuck out my parents' camera, a movie camera, and took it to the show and shot some Super 8 silent footage of. Uh, it was I don't think it was any touring bands. It was probably like Necros, Negative Approach, Bored Youth, um, The Allied, and he he shot this footage, Super 8. Probably brought it home. Didn't have the money to process it forgot all about it, went to college. My dad must have done something with it because I found it after my mom died in 2015. There's this processed roll of film that was unlike anything else that I was so accustomed to seeing in terms of the family home movies. And I recognized it right away um, because, I mean, having been so so involved with the punk scene back in the 80s, this is wow. It's like finding a cave painting like th almost 30 plus years later at the time I found it. And what I realized was that the freezer in Detroit was a small short-lived venue that was a really sort of a, a crucible for a lot of what happened in Detroit at that time and what would go on with uh, other you know bands and musicians a lot a lot started there a lot of uh, went through there and the footage I found was the only known motion picture footage of the freezer um, there's like still still photos there's no time-based media of the freezer existing as a as a live venue and so I found this footage. I didn't think much of it. This is 2015. I put it on YouTube and say, hey, everybody out there, I found this. Can some people start helping me identify this and that? 
And suddenly then a bunch of people start coming out because, as you know, there is that whole sort of that, that tribe from that era is still kind of active, even though they're, you know, 50 or 60 plus years old. They still talk to each other and they still remember things. So people come out like a Todd Swalla, for example, from the Necros says, hey, that's, you know, that's this show happened on this date. This is who played. That's me right there. That's so and so there. So and then a whole other bunch of people coming out. And then I realized right then and there that this means a lot to a lot of people this time in their life. And it's not just nostalgia, but it was just a very kind of frenzied, feverish time in a lot of um, people's lives in the you know, early 80s. And I realized, okay, there's a lot of interest here. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of people are still very connected to that point in their life. And I thought, okay, I'm going to start talking to people. And then I started lining up some interviews. And, you know, like anything, I'm a filmmaker, but I'm not really a documentary filmmaker. And I'm a, I'm a Charlie nobody as far as in the world of punk rock, or at least that generation of punk rock uh, people, early 80s. So I start doing some interviews. I start with a fellow named Bill Danforth, who's a professional skater. I move on to Tesco. I move on to Steve Miller from The Fix. And I realize in talking to these people, and I'm not, I'm not stupid. I mean, I structure my interviews a certain way where I can sort of start getting the bones for a story. And I realize there's a lot here to talk about. There's a lot of anecdotes and it points to the fact that this is a part of Detroit music history that nobody really even recognizes anymore. I mean, Detroit, you know, kind of rock history or music history is very kind of, you know, monolithic or whatever. And it's very sort of established. But this was like one of those weird little chapters that a lot of people have a lot of excitement over. And it meant a lot to a lot of people. So I built a story around that. You start interviewing and you get the momentum and you get referred. And then along the way, you realize there's a lot of personality and character here. But the one thing, I don't want to go on too long with that, Mike, but I'll go back to the footage at the, that I used that was the seed. Finding the Super 8 footage that my brother shot was the seed for this whole film. But what was fascinating at that time, and it points to a, 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 a portion of an interview with a fellow named Rob Michaels, who was in a band called Bored Youth, and a very art, great articulate guy. And he made a very interesting observation that at the time, 1981, 80, whatever, 82, you were literally... 12, 13, 14 years on from the summer of love. And here I am now in 2017, 2018, when I started making the film, talking about something that's almost 40 years away. So it just really put everything into context in terms of the, the passage of time and how far removed we are from that point in our lives, that early 81, 82 that the film deals with, and how, you know, it's just a weird sort of chronology thing that I experienced. And which is why at the beginning of the film, I put the context in the freezer. <laughs> yeah, but what, what about 40 years difference between 1981 and 1941? Jesus Christ. I, I, so I, I, I want to play some uh, bored youth, okay? <laughs> but imagine in 
Why don't the club owners hire the germs anymore? Mm, we do get shows occasionally, but it is getting harder. I think there's a lot of bands now, and when we were first doing it, there weren't that many bands. And a lot of the new bands are just more cooperative as far as doing a sedate, safe stage show. There's no threat of um, an imminent riot. I've had promoters grab me and shake me and say, stop this show, it's on the verge of becoming a riot. I guess we used to do stuff. I mean, back, you know, it was good to have that kind of reputation then, you know, but um, not anymore, because now we can't play anywhere. Tell me, why, how, how is it that you're always getting hurt? Well, first I did on purpose. Yeah. To keep from being bored. He's come out of shows with huge scrapes and scratches and claw marks all over him and just pouring blood, but it always looks a lot worse than it is. What's the worst time you ever got hurt? Mm, the whiskey. I cut my foot open. What happened? I came down the stairs to do, do an encore, and then I jumped on a half a broken glass like that, and I, I had to get like 30 stitches. So I was standing like right in front, and I was looking at his face, and, and like you ended up sitting down on the ground. And you were holding your foot like this, and you looked at it, and, and you just started going, ah, you know, and then you stopped playing and stuff, and we were running around trying to find your tennis shoes. And I had to go to the hospital with blue hair and stuff, and they were bringing all the nurses in and stuff to look at me. Why do you get so loaded to perform? Because that way I don't feel myself getting hurt. I mean, it's scary out there. No, it's real scary, like, because when we play, we're right down there in the audience, and there's lots of creeps out there. And there's lots of people that have grudges against us now, too. And so if I didn't get loaded, I wouldn't be able to do it. I just broke this egg. Well, we've tried everything to get him to do that. I have to do what? To, him, to sing into the mic. It's just like almost like the enemy or something stay away from it at all costs it seems so tell me why you don't sing into the mic darby just don't pay attention i'm too loaded we've tried everything short of gluing his mouth to it yeah this mic's not working things get broken monitors mics but you kind of have to expect that if you hire an energetic young band. Darby, pick up the mic. The mic. When they first 
got together as a band. They didn't know how to play their instruments, and they did things to kind of camouflage that. Darby would smear peanut butter all over him. He'd dive through broken glass. He'd break glasses on his head. And eventually they learned how to play. Douglas and Yates. 
Douglas, center of the city, not the hub city. That's Nanaimo, N-A-N-A-I-M-O. Thursday at Eugene's for that great hummus Eugene does. But you didn't show, so you didn't know just where it was. Well, you just didn't get off the boat, didn't just fly into here. So how the hell do you get lost? You lived here for 30 years. Lived here 30 years. 30 odd years. 30 odd years. And then you asked me how to make up for all your past mistakes. I said a softy cone might be a good first step to take. The beacon driving at three You gave me your word But at three The only company for me was the first Why can't you keep a simple date? Why can't you ever follow through On those promises you make to me? Just what is wrong with you? Is remembering so hard Have you forgotten so easily That cheeseburger you promised me Down at the Maple Leaf I'll answer with you An appointment Directions and time You say you'll be there when you win Have me some wine about how Yates and Douglas, center of the city, the garden city, city of garden.
We lijnen recht tegenover elkaar. Overbodige discussie die is sowieso klaar. Misschien mogen we elkaar wel, maar ik hou de mond gesloten. Ik hoop hiermee ontloop ik het gevaar. We praten over alles behalve de zinnige dingen. Het spook in de kamer weet altijd binnen te dringen. Zinderende bewegingen om elkaar heen springen. Bereik het einde van het lied zonder kiesmededelingen. Onoverbrugbare geloof, de politiek geloof. Ben het er niet mee eens, dan zeg ik het ook. Ik neem geen blad voor de mond, ik hark het op van de grond. Ik wap hem met de handen en de Komt de punt bij de paal, verandert die in de smeer Onverwachts komt die bij je binnen iedere keer En voelt het aan als een trap tegen het serapee Met wat heel op de ziel moet je er wel overheen Je mag je wat vaker stoten aan dezelfde steen Tegenpolen, de een is pro-Europa, de andere tegenpolen De ene wil dat iedereen een beetje mee kan komen De andere vindt dat die tepen open Imaginaire lijnen beperken en mededogen Onevenredige verdeling zie je daar met ledenhogen Levensgroot, teleurstelling geschreven over lege hoofden Emoties nemen het over 
Hij draait hem het feit. Ja, accepteert de scheid. Eerder dan te werken aan een betere realiteit. Optimisme versus aangewende negativiteit. Het ging je boven de pet, raakte je principes kwijt. Dierlijke onverzettelijkheid in strijd met je ideaal. Trek een lijntje met je lineaal. Wie bepaalt de grens? Zeker niet zo niemand alleen. Zijn men alleen deel je met jezelf als een vriend vertaal. Maar komt de punt bij de paal, verandert hij in de speer. Onverwachts komt hij bij je binnen iedere keer. En voelt eraan als het kap tegen het serapeen. Met wat hield op de ziel kom je te verlopen heen. Je mag je wat vaker stoten aan dezelfde steen. Waarom zeg je dat zonder enige wetenschap? Je legt gesprekken lam, ook al wordt je betrapt op hete data reden. Vergeet het maar, van meter van bepaald. Stekelige dan een evels om strategisch belang. Maatstaven op basis van een onderbuikgevoel. Aangevuld met wantrouwen, de empathie zonder koelt. Vandaar die bijzondere smoel. Wie kon je wat doen? Het draait om jou, de rest is slecht. Het is een onder je schoen. Wat komt de punt bij de paal? Verandert die in de speer? Onverwachts komt die bij je binnen iedere keer. Yeah, well, uh, during a period of my life when I was, you know, existing enough into like pizza bagels and Arby's, double beefers and stuff, and I, at one point I noticed that I had, you know, had a bowel movement in like three days. And so I figured I'd get some, some Miller's brand from the local health food store and mix it with some cereal. And after I ate it, lo and behold, the next morning I sat on the porcelain bowl and gave birth to this veritable fecal tip. It looked like a mushroom with little knuckles on top. It got small at the bottom. Bummer. And that's run fire, one, two, three, four. I
Rattlesnake, rattlesnake. You turn me up in the headphone. Can't hear it. Give me some more heat in my air screw. Yeah. Yep. From Pedro Show, we heard Bored Youth with Outcast. You know what? I, I forgot to say what we started the fucking show off. With John Coltrane <laughs> doing Countdown. And then Negative Approach, Can't Tell No One. But this chunk of music here, it started off with Outcast and Bored Youth. And then we had something from the Germs. This is Darby. I, I think it's from Western, Decline of Western Civilization. Mm-hmm. And Los Angeles is mentioned several times in your film. And this yes. is 1979, 1980, Darby yep. making breakfast and talking about stuff. And got only 22 years old when he died. You know, it, that's only a kid, but he yeah. was, he's my age, you know, maybe even a couple months older. And so it's trippy how he seemed to age. I don't see him as a little kid. He's like my age. When I think <laughs> that, yeah. Then we had somebody I, from Vancouver. Who used yeah. to do sound for No Means No? Andy Curry lives in the Netherlands the last 20 years. And this is Douglas and Yates. 
Then brand new from the Mistons, a new Portland, Oregon band, World of Convenience. This has got Sean from Cracker Bash. Bombas Prendon after that from D.C. area. These cats have done in the last 40 years. I recorded five, 6,000 songs, maybe did only four or five gigs. Everybody's got a trippy scene there, Adam. Yeah. Well, if it, if it's interesting. <laughs> and Von, uh, Juan Van de Dag out of the Netherlands with Tegan Poland. Uh, the Meat Man, there's Tesco V. I've got a problem. One time he wrote me a letter saying, yeah. what's the best burrito in Pedro? <laughs> yeah. Murdered Man after that with First Embrace. Uh, a brand new Bronze Age UFO out of uh, Baltimore with Home and Garden. Home and Garden, like the project uh, fucking Tony Mamoni and Scott Krause had. But this is H-O-M-M-E, so kind of French word for man. Yeah. And then Rinklin, yeah, you you know the Quebecois. Huh? Yeah. And the Rinklin brothers with uh, Theodora's House of Rare Condoms. The, the only real Rinklin brother in this arrangement is Joe Dean. John Wayne, uh, no, no H in that name. It ain't the fucking movie guy. And this <laughs> is Apple Schnapps. And then finally, the Necros with I Hate My School. And the bass man, Corey, figures prominently in your film there. And yes. uh, so you, you said a word there. You said referral because all you had to go on at first was your brother's footage. And then yes. you went and talked to that pro skater. Yeah. And then I, I assume that you, like, flew to D.C. to talk to Ian Mackay. Uh, I drew. I drove. Sorry, I drove. Drove to D.C. Yeah. Okay, so you drove to D.C. And then... Because Ian, in my opinion, Ian McKay and John Brandon are the really intense personalities. Uh, yeah. You could tell by their, you know, the front man, right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, even yeah, yeah. even in Spiels, like for a movie, you can see how. But everybody's interesting and, and gives a good perspective. And what was really good, you must have had to wade through like hours of interview shit to edit and get to the point and hold the focus. Yeah, I think what it is with, I mean, to, to, I probably talked to just over 70 people. I ended up not using 10 of them uh, just for, because you got to keep your film within a reasonable sort of running time. And then I have about 90 hours of uh, interview footage that I had to go through. And it's just like a process, you know what I mean? And just you start seeing the story as you're talking to people and you start seeing the structure and you start seeing the arc. Uh, one thing I will say about Ian, Ian, Ian is like probably one thing I didn't want him to do, um, Mike, was make a film where I get an external endorsement of how cool or how great or how important or influential Detroit hardcore punk was. I didn't want to I didn't want to get a, a you know, a Dave Grohl or a Henry or someone saying, yeah, it's, no, I didn't need that. Everybody who's in the film who's on camera was an eyewitness. Even if you want to talk with someone like Ian Mackay, you think, OK, that seems like what connection is that there? There's a great connection in in minor third half to Detroit and Windsor was the fact that Detroit, the evolution of the Detroit hardcore scene is bookended by the appearance of minor threat. First in Windsor in, in 1981, the summer of 1981, there was no Detroit hardcore scene at that point in time. But all the kids in Detroit came over to Windsor, saw minor threat, and it's like, wow, this is how it's done. And then they went home and formed their bands, and then you got like you know negative approach, and you got your bored youth, and so forth. Now the Necros, to their credit, were already around and functioning as a well, band. Well, they're actually across the border in Ohio and Maumee. 
Look, it's 40 we're, minutes we're, away. It's 40 minutes away. I know, I know, but come on, Mexico's only like two hours from here, and it's a whole other world. <laughs> like you were talking about how Canada's a little different across that Ambassador Bridge. Look, we're yeah. at the end of the first hour. April 27, 2021, <coughs> Dish Wap Pedro Show. Special guest, Otto Bouge. Hold tight for hour two. April 27, 2021. It's the second hour of the Watt for Pedro show. Like a tune, folks seek shelter. 
Oh 
What does a mother go through when a child is taken, for instance? What does a child know? Take a landmine, for instance. What does a landmine show? And a children knew another mother must go through. What does a mother go through? Salvation for its own. 
show we start off the second hour a negative approach doing nothing then sam lock ward out of iowa city with pitch tent murdered by death i shot an arrow america werewolf academy out of dallas with free bird no free beard <laughs> almost but not <laughs> silence uh silent street eaters with tailings there's some mining uh residue Fucking foul. Sigoti after that. This is a constant master. This is a constant master. They forgot a fucking comma there, Tom. Tom's the only U.S. guy. The rest are Italiano, so they get passed. Kiwi Jr. after that. Cooler returns. Uh, they're, they're, they're maritime cats that moved to Toronto. That's oh. another place I got to fucking play. Is maritime. One day, one way. What? Yep. And then finally, Bored Youth with Misfit. Now, uh, you had more to say about Ian McKay. Yeah, I, I think what it is is that, oh, at the tail end of your, the previous hour, Mike, what it is that Ian, so Ian was, is kind of like, in terms of my film, my A-lister, my most recognizable figure, but he's not a gratuitous figure in, in terms of the fact that he, they, Minor Threat in D.C. had a very intimate relationship with the Midwest. And Ian says in the film, which is very important, that Detroit, might not have lasted long in terms of that that uh, hardcore punk scene in the early 80s because they all the kids seemed to grow up and did other things, other types of bands and music or or evolved onto other things. But Ian said Detroit was very important as an energy center, as a sort of convergence point for a lot of what was going on in the American punk scene at that point in time, where there was touring bands or, or the whole sort of, you know, the communication of, with fanzines and whatnot. But what, the one reason I think that's important with Detroit and, uh, you know, uh, mid, the Midwest, Southeast Michigan as an energy center was that it doesn't get acknowledged in, in the broad history of American punk rock. I mean, uh, when that movie came out, American Hardcore, when the whatever, the, the Sony Picture Classics one that came out 10, 15 years ago, they didn't even mention the Midwest and Detroit. But if you look at Detroit and the Midwest and someone like Tesco V and touch and go, they are so significant in terms of the evolution of that whole DIY initiative to, to create something that doesn't exist so that you can enjoy it and develop it by doing a fanzine. I mean, I don't know a lot about American punk rock history, but touch and go fanzine, which was part of, you know, the, the Detroit scene was a very important publication early on, as far as a, a means of information communication for a lot of people and touch and go records the same sort of thing. And other than discord records at the point in time, there wasn't a lot going on in the country. And I mean, you know, you were there. Oh, in the bullshit. West Coast. There was SST. SST. There was subterranean up in the city. I mean, yeah. there was other things, but yeah, for sure. Ian McKay, Ian McKay, Tesco V, Corey with uh, touch and go. Those people. And uh, I bet you, if you asked all three of those guys about SST, they would say they were an influence. Oh, and so they just were my opinion, just my opinion. You said you yeah. didn't know much about U.S. punk. 
Yeah, but I think I mean I I, I kind of know enough, and I think in the in the film, like we're talking about the, the a lot of the, the faces, you know, the people in the bands in the movie, even some of the audience people say in Detroit at that point in time, the big influence what was happening in L.A. and what was happening in Washington D.C. Those were the two big influences on what was happening in Detroit. It's funny at the point in time in um in 1980-81, a lot of these bands that are part of the Detroit kind of proto-punk history like the Stooges and the MC5 weren't really didn't really sort of have any influence or impact on the kids who were making part of that punk scene at that point in time only later did they realize what, what had been happening in their own backyard and under their nose 10 years earlier but in Detroit the kids were looking to the west coast into Washington DC well you know I could t speak for SoCal because I was here and there's two phases there's the 70s punk with Hollywood and people yes. from Glitter and Glam who know all about fucking Stooges and then there's this thing in the early 80s called Hardcore. The first people we heard called Hardcore was Ian. That's what, it, you know, Discord Records. It's part of the yeah. word. And so here's the parallel I see with the Detroit uh, thing in your movie. Yeah. Suburbs. Suburbs. Yeah, Same it, it thing is. here. The Hollywood scene <clears throat> in the 70s was not like 80s because a lot of that Hardcore came out of Orange County in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. But like, let's say SST was kind of in one of the beaches or something. They were like, you know, was it like Manhattan Beach or no, I mean, no, Hermosa Beach? Hermosa, but that's but, not which is right suburbs, next door. Is it? It's right next door. Yeah, but it's different than Orange County. It's beach town. You know, it's it's much different. It's even different okay. than Huntington Beach because that's an Orange County beach. Actually, yeah. SoCal's 150 towns. It's balkanized like a motherfucker. But see, <laughs> the big difference is Greg Ginn, SST founder, he's going to the Hollywood gigs. He's their age. He's not a kid from Orange County like Jack singing for TSOL. Okay. okay. Or Mike Ness singing for Social Distortion. Or Tony singing for The Adolescents. Yes. Different, different. The Black Flag guys, older guys, educated by the scene up you know, the original guys, the Screamers, the Weirdos, the Germs, the Dills, yep. X. Here, I want to play uh, more Necros. All right.
with IQ32, slang with from uh, Hokkaido, Japan, 162 graves, show you how fucking uh, hardcore is worldwide movement, and it's all the same band playing the same song, right? Uh, yeah. A silver <laughs> bootleggers medley live from Nun's Island, uh, QC? Ah, that's probably uh, Quebec, huh? Yeah. yeah. And uh, from, that's from Manuel. Armida, he was on the show a couple uh, editions ago. He's actually originally from Mexico City, and he married a lady from your land and lives up in Yellowknife now. Oh. Not even a province, a Northwest Territory. Territory, yeah. P.S., <laughs> like Puerto Rico, right? P.S.X.O., yeah. after that, with Monster Cheese, Zombie Crash, Street Fight, Waku Waku Kingdom with Love Game, and finally, Sex Drive from Necros, which... According to your documentary, there wasn't much sex drive. Well, these are kids. They're like 12, <laughs> 16. Now, we were talking about this thing about uh, off-air people, about Hollywood punk, 70s punk being kind of anti-arena rock, kind of, totally. And it's artist people fucking mocking the whole fucking jive thing. Whereas with the hardcore kids out of the suburbs, they're not reacting against an older uh, or a, a weird form of perversion of rock and roll you know, Nuremberg uh, rally version. They're, it's actually their first rock and roll. So when they start learning how to play, they want to be like an arena rock guitarist. It's a strange dynamic. Go yeah. ahead. That, that's why it's like, like I was saying, like off, off camera, off air, Mike, I think with the Necros were like, you listen to Sex Drive, those kids were like, literally like, you know, those kids were like, young and they're all elbows and there was no great you know, nothing there even remotely rock and roll or sexual or decadent about them but the minute they grow up a bit and they come of age and the minute a guitar player learns to play like joe perry there's no turning back which is why the necros before they disbanded were a band that was so far removed from their origins to the point that you know what why they were they only the same band in name only which is you got to understand because i think you know sometimes these kids like you were saying that whole, uh, you know, approach to music, that sexualized approach of playing loud, big, heavy rock and roll, competent rock and roll, impressive, hairy rock and roll is something that kind of you you kind of leave everything else behind to, to grow into. But I think it's a bit of a fool's errand at the end of the day. Even that's another dead end. So it's kind of interesting how that whole evolution happens, right, um, with these hardcore kids. The one thing is, like you were mentioning with the rock and roll thing, in Detroit, in the, in the film uh, sort of uh, attests to this, the hardcore kids were very much a reaction also to the decadence of, of this, this sort of like New York style, you know, English 77 type punk thing where drugs and promiscuity and, and that sort of decadence were all a big part of it. The hardcore kids kind of re rejected that, I think, as being sort of gratuitous and gross. And they just wanted to do something a lot more streamlined, a lot more, you know, a lot more to the point. 
of course, in retrospect, to a great fault. But look, I think that's look, also look, look. the Beastie Boys told me the same thing. Yeah, Johnny Thunders, that's junky rock. We're not part of that because they were a hardcore band at first. Look, we're at the end of the second hour, April 27, 2021, and this Show special guest, Otto Bouge. Hold tight for hour three. April 27, 2021, it's the third hour of the Watt for Pedro Show. We won't take any shit, and we're not about to leave.
See you in the 
Show we start off the third hour of negative approach again. They're the fucking hour starters with ready to fight. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that should have been the first. Then I know the Minutemen actually stayed at John's Pad in Ann Arbor when they were called up uh, laughing hyenas. Yeah, and he gave us a fucking Three Stooges poster that we put it was in the fucking boat in the back window of the van that D Boom was killed in. Um, crane after that with giant footprints, pants exploder. From Caesar's Palace in Brooklyn with, that'll be five bucks, Chief. By the way, Barry of the Necros people made a band called Big Chief and really got into some hair rock. Uh, flies on you after that. Schmutz, Zieger, Hund. Uh, Tim Holhouse and the Tourette Boys. Yeah. Revolver Flavor. Yes. And finally, they don't have the right. Bored Youth. And you gave me a lot from a couple bands. Although there's a few bands now, you know your your uh, uh-huh. film also has uh, subjects of drogas and race. Yes, it's not just music. It's not just uh, young kids. The, yeah, yeah. Well, you want to talk about those? Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's talk about the the race thing. I mean, it's not so much an explicit race issue, but what it is is Detroit is as a city is. Uh, I mean, by that time, by 1981 was predominantly a, a black city, an African-American city, uh, a very, you know, poor, for lack of a better, you know, way to describe it. It was, it was, it was a tough place to live because by then there had already been a white flight. By then a blight had taken hold and it was only a matter of people being left behind or those left behind. And it took all these kids from the suburbs, from outside of the city. I mean, there were a few kids who were from inside the city proper, but most of them were kind of like white boys from the, the, the suburbs that ring Detroit. But only by coming into a city, into an environment, into an area called the Cass Corridor, which is in downtown Detroit, which now is terribly sort of scrubbed clean and gentrified. But at that point in time, that was pretty much ground zero for prostitution, narcotics, Violent crime. Hence, hence the title of your film. Hence the title, and I'm quoting uh, John Brandon on that because he says that's all there was there. You know, he might be taking a bit of poetic license, but not that much. And so, what it is is that at, it, it only took an environment like that—a very sort of lawless environment where there's no oversight. Cops didn't have to worry about like what these little white kids were doing late at night, being loud. They had bigger, you know, fish to fry. So, but only in that environment did these white kids from the suburbs feel they had comfort and they could explore this music and they could find camaraderie. So it's kind of an irony that they couldn't do that up in like a suburban hall in Sterling Heights, but they had to come down to probably the worst part of Detroit to be able to sort of um, grow and, and sort of do their thing and have fun and sort of mature as, you know, as people. It's, it's odd. And I'm speaking on a human level. And that's why a lot of these kids, they said it was the most sort of exciting, scary rich part of their lives was kind of growing up in the proximity of everything that was so real in, in, in Detroit. And uh, that was one thing. But so the race factor there, there was no really, there was an issue of racial sort of, you know, separation or tension. I mean, the locals there, you, you know, if they weren't sort of like hippie holdovers who were just still living in that area, they were local, you know, black families or, or people living in halfway houses. Nobody really messed with the kids. The kids. No, were no, no. Their- the scary thing I saw was 
like as the movement declines, people graduate towards skinhead Nazi shit. Well, that, yeah, no, I'm that not talking bald haircuts like Ian and John. I'm talking about some kind of ideolo- ideological, uh, hate-driven shit. Yeah. Well, if I can address that, in Detroit, that kind of was pretty much starting. And, and the, the people in the film, Brandon, John Brandon, addresses that. That's when, the, you know, this beginning of the end. Once the scene sort of was no longer a tight, tight-knit, small scene, with a bunch of kids who were there for all the right reasons. I mean, all the right reasons is that they're kind of creative, they're proactive, they're wild, but there's a constructive energy. The minute that got sort of supplanted by these people who came in from outside of that world, who brought in a lot of, you know, sort of negative intentions, then suddenly you started getting issues of, you know, People saw issues of race. People saw issues of gender. People saw issues of sexuality and started making divisions based on that. Yeah, and yeah. that was, it was over by, and, and they, by 1983, a lot of people will say 83, 84, it was over. The innocence yeah. was lost and a lot of the wrong people are there for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, that's when we played there with Black Flag, something called City Lights, I think. And John opened up, negative approach opened up. Now, what about the droga thing? Well, the drug thing, I think, is, you know, it was... There and you know some people say that um, you know a person like Larissa kind of brought that into that milieu, even though it wasn't really overt or explicit or sort of uh, evident. And there's people in the film like Chris Moore who played drums for Negative Approach. He says you know he was 15 at the time. He didn't understand what drugs were, or why people did them, or or what an effect it had on people. But it was there. And it became um, sort of, for some people, it became a habit, and it became a destructive habit, and it became a deadly habit, ultimately. And, you know, you talk about someone like Larissa who went on to do Laughing Hyenas, and I think, I think kind of, you know, suffered um, her end based on that. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think it was there, but there was, at the same time, you know, it was not even, there's just, for lack of a better way, there's a kind of innocence about it. A lot of these kids Yeah, yeah, the, a lot of the hardcore kids I know were straight edge. That's what the X yeah. on the hands uh, yeah. kind of meant, you know, what Ian's talking about his brother wearing him. Look, I want yes. to play uh, some meat, man. We got to play Tesco, the fourth grade teacher who ends up a hardcore singer. I should give it leg braces that don't even fit. Mom and dad spoke their show. With an arm stick on his ass Ripple to the top Ripple to the top This is an obrada One of the Irish bands
It's fucking new. I've sucked seven of these two dicks.
pretty much all day. While you wear a one-piece bathing suit I will not be home, nor will anyone else While you do this Dancing, 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 dancing I will pay you, pay you, pay you, pay you, pay you One dollar, I will leave the keeper You and you will sit at your leisure I will require at least a five-minute stay A neighbor will watch the front door from across the street And using a supplied stopwatch We'll time your entrance and departure Please bring your own footwear The noodles will be cooked And therefore slippery I will Pay you, pay you, pay you, pay you, pay you One dollar to sit in my bath of full of noodles While you wear a one-piece bathing suit I will not be home, nor will anyone else While you do this Here we go Dancing, 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 dancing 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 
I will season, 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 season the pasta after I return home prior to dinner. Do not bring any sauce. Hey, look, for love, we look for me. That's it, that's it. What's that? That's it. I'm gonna bust your head in like the monster on the opposite. Fight about them, I'll keep on saying. Tell us they want to take them. Fight when I get a girl. 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 I'm not being able to fuck. Cause it's not my picture. The Philadelphia world. Just because you're a girl. Fight when I get a girl. Fight when I get a girl. Fight when I get a girl. Bloody hell, I'm a fucking shark. Then I can't talk too much. Then I have to stand up and I'm in a dead baby. One, two, three, and then you raise your hand. Lot for Pedro Show last music for this edition. The Meat Man with Crippled Children Suck. Why Stackla? Uh, something live. Otto Pusignier. <laughs> Sorry, I'm destroying another language. This one, a Balkan one. Uh, Peter <laughs> Evans after that, Matrix. Uh, Dig Reichnerv, Mr. East Der Tot. This is Tom Smith, you know, with throw up. He lives in Hanover now, so, you know, of course, everything's got to be in German. Uh, Veda Hill, but he's from uh, Georgia originally. Uh-huh. The, the state, not the country. Veda Hill, uh, Vancouver. Noodles, this is a... Uh, Hunter Parter made songs out of Craigslist shit. And then finally, The Meat Man with I'm Glad I'm Not a Girl. And Tesco uh, was the adult in the room, people. He was not 12, 13 years old. He, in fact, he was teaching fourth grade. And uh, interesting cat. He used to write me letters and when I was a Minuteman, like, what's the best burrito in San Pedro and stuff like that. So let's talk about Tesco here. Well, let's, I mean, Tesco, you know what? Starting uh, Touching O'Fanzine, co-founding it with Dave Stimson, huge, huge uh, part of the evolution of the Detroit hardcore punk scene. I think a huge part of the evolution of the American hardcore punk scene and the whole DIY uh, a culture of getting things done by your own means and, and, uh, you know, uh, methods and, you know, starting touch and go records, which of course went on, you know, to be picked up by Corey Rusk and became a pretty big thing in the eighties and nineties and influenced a lot of other labels. Um, but I think a guy like uh, Tesco though, if you, and I wanted to talk like Tesco and John Brandon, uh, from negative approach, those guys, um, Sorry about that ringing. But those guys were, um, let's say, John, he was a child of 70s rock. For him, it was it was very much about Alice Cooper, T-Rex, even before he got into punk. And you go to a guy like Tesco, who was also very much about Grand Funk, Montrose. He was a total, like, rocker kid at those that point, in, you know, before he got invested in punk rock. And what's great is that a lot of those guys, like, who were a little older, Tesco and John, brought that sort of rock and roll literacy to what they were doing. It might not be obvious when you hear the Meat Man. You don't hear, you know, you don't hear Mott Rose. Oh, but my, my first gig, me and D Boone's first gig was T Rex. You know, it, you, you're a victim of when you're born. You don't pick. No, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, but I, I, actually, that T Rex gig was pretty good. But it wasn't a you know big gig. It wasn't club. 
See, okay. club culture, putting on your own things. That What you were talking about, the DIY, what, what fucking Walt Whitman did in 1855 to get his leaves of grass out. That's wow. the ethic that got uh, promoted by the, this little short-lived movement, I think. Now, now, where people, where can people see your movie? Well, right now, I'm trying to avoid online big streaming platforms. So you can't see it right now on Amazon. You can't see it on Google. The, the only way you're going to see it right now is uh, go to the, the, the movie's website. It's www.DetroitHardcoreMovie.com. Once again, www.DetroitHardcoreMovie.com. There's a streaming platform there. You yeah. pay eight bucks. You have a great time. Yeah, they can they can find that out. Yeah, I know. Now, I know. now what, what do you got planned next? You got another movie planned? Well, right now I got to recover from this one. I got to recuperate. <laughs> I got to claw back some some uh, ticket sales to sort of, you know, be less less bitter about it, right? But it, it's it's doing great. I got to right look. Now. I got to tell you, I'm very glad that you did this and all those cats that was part of that thing and and it, without other cats who were influenced without even knowing it. Yeah. Grateful that you did That's this. Thing. It's, such, it's such this a, like a small part of the whole, you know, pantheon of Detroit, uh, not Detroit, of American punk rock. But it's a ah, Canadian too, small. man. You mentioned DOA. In fact, Joey's in there for a little bit. And yes. they, they were important. Those were the guys with Black Flag that built the tour circuit we still use now as soon as uh, the situation comes down. I want to yeah. thank you so much for being on the show, Truly Otto. Thank you so much. People, it's been the, uh, <laughs> April 27th. 2021 dish, what? Pedro, should keep your pattern right.